-hmm. No, there are more than three. I think there are six or seven. Actually, I don't know if they feel silenced. Is any of you a Republican feeling silenced? Well, you wouldn't say, would you? <laughs> um, is any of you a Republican willing to go on the record as not being happy with the general liberal tendencies? Is that a sort of? Oh, no, that wasn't. No, okay. No, I, don't, I actually don't think anyone here is a Republican. I feel like if they were unhappy with like, this kind of environment, they wouldn't necessarily put themselves in it. Like, yeah, um, I think if they were, well, some people do feel oppressed at Brandeis by, I mean, by politics. Um, some people uh, feel militant at Brandeis. Um, there's the whole um, complication of issues when it comes to Israel, um, where, um, lots of, where lots of people prefer Republican rhetoric, at any rate, about Israel to Democratic rhetoric about Israel. Um, so it's a complicated campus. That's a good thing. I like to tell people I'm the opposite of whatever they are to inspire uh. brutal arguments. That, yeah, that's... Because um, it's fun to me. Um, I'm pretty indifferent either way. It's actually reading about addiction to indignation, um, which is something that you can see on comments <laughs> on the internet. Um, but it, it sounds like Fox Well, but, but I like getting indignant. <laughs> I mean, I see all these people who are addicted to indignation, I say, I can't believe how many people are addicted to indignation! Um, it's just awful. Um, I'm actually waiting for more people to trickle in, but um, that might be like trickle down economics. Someone in my uh, <laughs> political this morning, <laughs> someone in my politics class, he told us the first day that he was working on Romney's campaign. And uh, the teacher had brought up something, and we were like, oh, yeah, he's working on Romney's campaign. Dan Everyone, Katz. And, and he's like fluffy, weird hair. No, Dan <laughs> Katz was only like, oh, The second Romney. someone said that, four kids in the class but simultaneously went. Whoa. And then, and then he yells, he goes, I am not working for Romney, I'm just working on his campaign. You mean writing a paper on his campaign? No, he's just, he just didn't want to say that he was like directly. Working for Romney, I say, just, you know, working on his campaign. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, know a lot of, I know a lot of future Republicans at Brandeis. Well, we all do. Uh, Anyone I mean, who moves to Florida. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Like people who are like very democratic and like wait as soon as you start like having a serious income you're immediately going to become a Republican. Yeah. Like you know the kind. Yeah. And there's some people who will be Democrats for life. Yeah. It's two yeah. different kinds of people. Yeah. Folk is a mecca of that. Which reminds me rather of turn of the screw. Um, which is a metaphor. I actually read two really interesting things that I thought I'd share with you as we wait for people to trickle in, which is also a metaphor. Since you brought up uh, metaphorical language. Um, do you guys know this book, Thinking Fast and Slow, by Daniel um, Kahneman? Um, it just came out. It's a bestseller. It's actually really great. He's a Nobel Prize winner in economics um, and now is pushing 80. Um, and this is sort of a summary of his um, life's work on biases and heuristics. That is how we think fast and also um, what kinds of ways, um, what kinds of ways we um, have to correct our fast thinking. Um, at any rate, I found two papers, or I found um, a bunch of papers in his footnotes, um, one of which is on rhyme monitoring, um, which is just a great phrase to think that there are psychologists who study things like rhyme monitoring. And then another similar paper on metaphor monitoring. So what these papers showed, and apparently this has been um, uh, several times 
um, repeated. Um, I actually looked up, so I, I looked up a bunch of this stuff now. Um, is that if you ask people, we wouldn't be able to do in this class because we don't have uh, sufficiently fine timing mechanisms. But if you ask people um, whether the words, and this is if you do it orally, um, to pick rhyme pairs. So you give them a bunch of rhymes, um, or you give them a bunch of paired words. You know, you say um, um, husband, wife, um, bright, light, um, fancy, schmancy, hopeful, dreadful, that kind of thing. Um, and you ask them to, to um, buzz when they hear a perfect rhyme, like bright and light, and not to buzz when they hear, you know, husband, wife, or something like that. Um, that's not a hard task, right? Task mask. God, you guys are slow. Yeah, okay, good. Um, 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 hope dope. All right, you guys, wake up, wake up. Ah, uh, now, we're, now we have um, uh, trickling in. Good. Um, in sin. All right. Gate late. <laughs> All right. Um, grade made. All right. Yeah, okay. Nice. <laughs> Table chair. All right. So if you do, if you ask people to do this, and if you give them vote note, <laughs> you should have been like. Not, if you give them, if you it's give, early. if you give people, like if you divide a thousand people up or a hundred people up into two groups, and if in one group you plant the pair um, vote note, um, and remember this is all oral. This is all um, people listening to words to see if they rhyme. Um, and in another pair, you give them, in another group, you give them the pairing vote goat. <laughs> uh, the vote goat people are much slower than the vote note people. And even though they're perfect rhymes. Because who would want to vote for a goat? Sorry? It's spelling, yeah. So it's the, but this is even if you're hearing it. The, di the fact that they're spelt differently affects how quickly you register that they're rhymes. What if they did that with people who were illiterate? I guess it'd be harder to find a big enough group of people who are illiterate. Well, no, I mean, if they do it... And still want to do, like, an intellectual study. This, well, this is actually, see, there, there was a claim that if, if you've taken any other theory class, you probably heard of Ferdinand de Saussure, the linguist. No? Okay, you have. Okay, so Saussure was sort of the founder of, have you heard of deconstruction? Sort of. Um, Saussure was the founder of post-structuralism, although that's not what he meant to be. He was a linguist um, in the first half of the 20th century. And he um, uh, came up with a theory of language, which is probably true, at least when it comes to sounds, that what matters are differences between sounds. Um, the famous example of this that any linguistics class will teach you is if you hold a match up in front of your lips and you say the word spin, the flame won't um, uh, flicker. But if you say the word pin, it will. And we don't hear the difference, we native English speakers, um, don't hear a difference between the P and pin and the P and spin, but we pronounce it differently. You can just put your fingers <coughs> up to your mouth and go pin, spin. And you'll feel a puff of breath in pin, but not in spin. Because there's a difference between going into from in depth. Yeah, um, but it's not something. If you ask people, is there a difference in sound? They would say no. Um, if you ask, if you ask native speakers, if you ask um, 
um, native speakers of English if there's a difference between um, um, what vase and bays? They will say, of course there is. No, you know, V and B, totally different sounds. Um, but if you ask a Spanish speaker, they won't hear a difference between saying bays and saying vase. Someone who is who is um, uh, from Spain, a native speaker of, of Spanish from Spain. Uh, maybe maybe from Catalonia actually is is where you'd hear at least. Um, so what Sure is basically saying is that um, there's that what counts for us, what we register, are differences rather than there isn't such a thing as a pure P. There's a whole bunch of sounds that we mentally um, put in that category um, of of what we would write as the letter P. Um, but what matters are the differences between sounds. Um, so that's the thing that people picked up most from uh, in Saussure, that, um, that differences matter rather than um, um, single um, and, and separate objects. There aren't objects. There are only differences between them, at least when it comes to sound. Um, Saussure also said, um, hazarded, guessed, that once you learn to read, um, and this is this is uh, what you guys were asking. That once you learn to read, you can't any longer experience language the way you did before you learned to read. That is, that once you know how to read, um, all sounds that you hear, there's a kind of um, unscrolling in your head of um, written signs that connect to those sounds. And it's very subtle and um, very um, um, background, but it's always there. And um, this is a really hard thing to prove or disprove, because once you learn to read, what he's saying is you can't remember what it was like to hear sounds before you learned to read, um, to hear spoken, to hear language before you learned to read. And if you ask someone who doesn't know how to read, so what's it like? They don't know what it would be like um, to know how to read. Um, but the idea of what's called um, um, uh, orthographical differences in rhyme monitoring, that's the name of the original paper, um, does show that knowing how to read makes a difference to whether you're hearing something as rhyming. Homer didn't know how to read. Homer didn't know how to write. Um, there was no reading or writing when Homer composed the Iliad and the Odyssey. And what that means is that it's a different um, experience of poetry from an experience that anyone has being able to read. Yeah? Isn't that debatable? About Homer? No. Whether or not he could read. Homer? No. There's no debate about that. The question is whether he existed. But if he existed, he couldn't <laughs> read. Um, what It was eventually written down, and you could say that whoever wrote it down um, also um, changed it, given the fact that they could write. Um, that's almost certainly true. Um, but to the extent that it's a survival of oral um, tale telling, which is also true, um, that, that's poetry um, that doesn't make an orthographic um, difference to its listeners. So um, what it means for us, though, reading poetry, is that something a good poet can do, um, and obviously this would all be intuitive, not not. Um, something that a poet is actually thinking, oh, look, I'm going to rhyme two words that are spelt differently. Although some poets will do that. I think Seamus Heaney does it um, to some extent. Um, I mean, I, actually, I think Seamus Heaney glories in it. Um, 
but um, your sense of the rhythm of a poem, not the meter, but the rhythm, um, you can get very subtle effects, or you'll, you'll um, notice very subtle differences in um, the effect that you'll get in a poem, depending on whether the words that are rhyming are spelt the same way or not. Um, not only if you're reading the poem, which does make sense. That is, you, um, there's a great poem by a guy named George Starbuck called Sonnet with a Different Letter at the End of Every Line. So think about that for a second. Um, because that means there are how many different letters? 14. 14 out of 26, 26 in, in our language. Um, so that's kind of hard. Um, I think you'd find very few blank verse poems with a different letter at the end of every line. It's like, find, it's like you know, that thing they always tell you in statistics that if you have 40 people in a room, it would, it's almost certain the two of them share a birthday. Um, did you know that? That's one of those, ooh, ah, you're supposed to say, ooh, ah. Uh, that, that there are two people, if, if you have 40 people in a room, the odds that there are 40 different birthdays are vanishingly small. With the, with the same month and day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, November 7th to take my birthday at random. Um, it's my sister's birthday. Sorry? It's my sister's birthday. See, there you go. So, yeah, I mean, uh, well, how many siblings? We could even, if, we probably don't have quite enough, but if you added your siblings and parents, I bet you would. Um, we'd have enough. Um, so let's just do it till we do it. Forget, forget me, but you, your siblings, and your parents' birthdays. As soon as someone, someone has a match, let's stop. What's your birthday? October 28th. Siblings? Uh, <laughs> September 9th. And parents? Um, wait, April, wait, <laughs> July, July 11th. And All right, see? Just took three. <laughs> It just took three. Look at that. And you know who else's birthday is July 11th? Harold Blooms. Huh. Yeah, 7 11. 7 11. No, Blooms Day is June 16th. Um, <laughs> see the things you learn. Um, okay, so that was way fast. But yeah, the point is with 40 people in a room, they'll um, almost inevitably um, be a match. I mean, you could bet money on it, and you would do really well if you bet money on that. Um, so if you have 14 lines of poetry, even in Paradise Lost, which doesn't rhyme, um, it's almost certain that you would have a match of two letters at the end of a line. Now, in rhymed poetry, think, that it's, think how much harder it is to have um, different letters at the end of every line, because a sonnet is generally is going to have um, at least one rhyme at least seven pairs of rhymes. That is to say, at most seven pairs of rhymes, probably more. Um, so if a sonnet is rhymed A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A, then you're going to have four A rhymes and four B rhymes in the first eight lines. Um, how are you going to make those have different letters at the end of every line? Um, you know, it's not impossible. You could, you could rhyme, um, I don't know, um, bidet with x-ray. Um, if you were silly, silly. Um, uh, but um, so one ends with T and one ends with Y um, and you could rhyme those with cliche and that would end with E so you can see that it's doable but it's hard so Starbuck has this poem called um, Sonnet with a Different I'll, I'll put it on Latte Sonnet with a Different Letter at the end of every line um, and it's hard 
and then you notice that that the sonnet begins with the letter with the letter O. That is, every line of the sonnet begins with the letter O. It begins O for a muse of fire, which is a quotation from Henry V. O for a muse of fire, a sack of dough. That's the first line. And then, if you read the sonnet, what you see is not only does all fourteen line do all fourteen lines of the sonnet have a different letter at their end, but there's only one rhyme in the sonnet. Every word in the sonnet ends with the sound O. Hmm. So that be that starts getting really hard to have fourteen different words ending and rhyming on the sound O. How does he do that with like R or Z? Well, he doesn't use R and Z. Oh. It's he doesn't use twenty six different rhyme words. Right. It's only fourteen. Um, so it's 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 not impossible. There are fourteen varieties of O. There are 14 varieties of O sound that you can do. Yeah, so, yeah I think with a few, low, but not that many. Low. Yeah. Low. Yeah. Um, woe is one of them that ends with A. Um, so. O U G H. Yeah, dough. O for a muse of fire, a sack of dough. Um, so, uh, so I'm reading this and thinking. Um, God, this is really great. I can't believe how great this is. George Starbuck is really great. I love George Starbuck. Um, George Starbuck, who also wrote a book called Space Saver Sonnets, where he did all of Shakespeare's sonnets in um, 14 syllables, took all 14 lines and reduced each line to a syllable. Um, but they still rhyme the same way. So there's the famous sonnet, which begins, when to the sessions of sweet, silent thought I summon up remembrance of things past. Um, which is Shakespeare saying, I think about stuff that happened in the past, and I'm all sad because it's all gone, but then I think of you. But when I think on thee, dear friend, all sorrows are restored and troubles end. Um, so he turns this into to think, loo, dink, and Miss Landis dead. You do stead he me. So to think, Lou Dink and Miss Landis dead. You do steady me. So each syllable rhymes um, in the same form as the Shakespearean sonnet. That is, it's A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G. Um, but it's 14 syllables. So it's a space saver sonnet. It's incredibly narrow. Um, sorry? craziest thing I've ever heard. Well, Starbucks is quite amazing. At any rate, so if you read um, Sonnet with a different letter at the end of every line, um, if you're me, what you think, what you notice is that one of the lines actually ends with the letter O. Only one, obviously, of the 14. And so what I thought to myself is, God, this is really amazing. But you know what would be even really more amazing is if he didn't even use the letter O at the end of every line. Um, that would have been more amazing. But of course, that, that he just couldn't do it. He, did, he went to the very limit. Um, but then, if you count the number of lines in this quote, sonnet, unquote, what you find is there are 15 lines in it. So he actually knew that I was going to think, I wish he'd had 14 lines, and by I, I mean the reader, was going to think, I wish he had 14 lines um, without the letter O at the end of every, any line and still had done it. Um, and then, at some point, I, the reader, was going to count the number of lines and say, well, what I should say, which is, Oh. Um, so um, 
but those are line, those are rhymes which are orthog orthographically different. All, all 15 of them differ orthographically. Um, the point again being though that it, that if you're literate and even if you're hearing poetry, if you're literate, um, your sense of the timing can be very subtly affected. Um, you can, you know, the way, the way jazz singers sing behind the beat. Um, you can get that kind of effect, that kind of effect of extremely subtle syncopation, let's say, um, that I'm sure no poet has ever um, planned but has heard. That, well, I won't say no poet. I think Heaney does a little bit. But, but, but it's something poets hear um, and readers hear um, rather than um, thinking, okay, now what I need is a word that rhymes but is spelt differently. Um, Starbuck obviously did that, but in general, I don't think um, that poets put it that way, but I think it has that effect, and that's a really neat fact. The other study that Kahneman talks about um, is one about metaphors, that if, again, if you ask people to buzz on whether a metaphor is true or not, remember that what we said in this class is a metaphor is always false, um, that if you give people, um, or give people a bunch of statements, and, and what you're supposed to do is buzz in if it's literally, literally true, um, or buzz in if it's not literally true, excuse me, buzz in if it's not literally true. And um, if you um, give them statements like, um, money is a snake, um, they buzz because it's false. Um, if you give them something like, um, the road is a snake, um, it takes them longer to buzz in. Metaphors that make sense, we process as though they're literally true, or our first guess is that they're literally true, um, even though they're not. So again, if you're a poet or a writer of any sort, this suggests that um, part of your intuition about your writing will come as an orchestration of metaphors, some of which are going to slow a reader down more than others. And um, just having a sense of that and knowing that there's um, a general response that people have to one kind of metaphor versus another kind of metaphor, that's a neat thing too. So I think we can start. I think whoever's going to trickle in has trickled in. Um, what I wanted us to look at, remember, is um, two bits. Um, one is the end of chapter 19, um, where Mrs. Gross and um, the governess find Flora, who's gone out. Remember, she's disappeared. And they go down to the lake. Um, and then uh, this is about a page before the end of chapter 19. So um, Flora, then there she is, we both exclaimed at once. Flora, a short way off, stood before us on the grass and smiled as if her performance had now become complete. The next thing she did, however, was to stoop straight down and pluck, quite as if it were all she was there for, a big, ugly spray of withered fur. So again, um, notice, as we sh always should, and I won't keep flagging this, but notice the ambiguity there. That is, Flora might be doing something just so innocent, which is to think this yucky piece of fern that's why she's there, because she wanted to pick the nice flower, and it's a yucky piece of fern. Or that might just be her desperate attempt to cover up what she's doing. Look, why am I here? Why? Oh, because of this flower. And she grabs a really ugly piece of fern. But given how old she is, we can't be sure. 
that this isn't innocent. So she waited for us, not herself taking a step, and I was conscious of the rare solemnity with which we presently approached her. She smiled and smiled, and we met, but it was all done in a silence by this time, flagrantly ominous. Um, flagrantly is a great word there. So it's the silence is flagrantly ominous. Um, again, maybe to the governess, but we don't know if it is for other people. Mrs. Gross was the first to break the spell. She threw herself on her knees and drawing the child to her breast, clasped her in a long embrace, clasped in a long embrace the little tender yielding body. While this dumb convulsion lasted, I could only watch it, which I did the more intently when I saw Flora's face peep at me over her companion's shoulder. It was serious now. The flicker had left it, but it strengthened the pang with which I, at that moment, envied Mrs. Gross the simplicity of her relation. So, again, what he's saying is what the governess is trying to figure out from Flora is not simple, or the way she's trying to do it is not simple. So, um, then Flora asks, um, why, where are your things? Um, where are yours, my dear? I promptly returned. Um, and then she says, and where's Miles? Um, I think that's important not only because it sets up the governess um, now trying to make a deal with her, where's Miles? But also because it shows how close Flora and Miles are, something that we know. Um, but Miles is, is as in any understanding of this book, Miles is a wonderful big brother. And in any understanding of this book, Flora appreciates that he's a wonderful big brother. They never fight. They never, the governess never has to worry about their bickering. Um, that's part of what's, what we like about these children, um, is how kind Miles is, uh, or how, how, how much he cares about Flora. And then when she says, where's Miles? Um, that's a thing that a little sister who feels loved would say. Um, she really, she, she wants him. Um, so there was something in the small valor of it, great phrase, small valor, that quite finished me. These three words from her were in a flash like the glitter of a drawn blade, the jostle of the cup that my hand for weeks and weeks had held high and full to the brim, and that now, even before speaking, I felt overflow in a deluge. I'll tell you if you tell me, I heard myself say, then heard the tremor in which it broke. Well, what? Mrs. Gross's, and that's Mrs. Gross who says, well, what? Mrs. Gross's suspense blazed at me, but it was too late now, and I brought the thing out handsomely. Where, my pet? is Miss Jessel. So that's, she's finally, you could say, lost, at least in her battle with Flora. This is, she's the first person to speak. Um, what Mrs. Gross has already set the tone for that in the paragraph that begins, uh, that ends with the words, I'll be hanged, it said, if I'll speak. So the governess and the children have spent the first 19 chapters of this book not being the first to speak about what might be at issue. And the point is, whoever speaks first is showing their hand. And the hand that they're showing is that they have a hand. That is to say, the governess is pretending she doesn't have 
some cards in her hand that she's just going around innocently. And the children never acknowledge that they're holding any cards. They're going around innocently. But whoever shows their cards, the way they would show their cards is A, to say, I am holding cards, and B, to say, and here's what I got. So what card does the governess show? I would say the queen of Miss Jessel, but yeah. Well, isn't it more than showing her own hand? Isn't she saying, I know you have a hand? Well, she's showing her hand, and, and by saying, I know you have a hand, and that you have a Miss Jessel in your hand, too, um, you know, I call. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, no, that is exactly what it is. Um, and so what she's done now is she said, look, I, we're playing a game, and now, the game was to pretend that we weren't playing a game. If you guys saw the movie Certified Copy, has anyone seen that movie? Um, totally great movie. Um, well, that, it's also, it's sort of like that. Part of it is, we don't, is that neither of them will admit to the other that they are playing a game. Um, because to admit that they're playing a game is to admit what the game's about, which is the ghosts. Now she's done it. She's admitted she's playing a game and what the game is about, Miss Jessel. So, just as in the churchyard with Miles, the whole thing was upon us, much as I'd made of the fact that this name had never once between us been sounded, the quick smitten glare with which the child's face now received it fairly likened my breach of the silence to the smash of a pane of glass. It added to the interposing cry as if to stay the blow that Mrs. Gross at the same instant uttered over my violence. That is her, um, the, what's on her face added to Mrs. Gross's cry. The shriek of a creature scared, or rather wounded, which in turn within a few seconds was completed by a gasp of my own. I seized my colleague's arm. She's there. She's there. So she says, where's Miss Jessel? Um, Flora looks stricken. Does that prove she's guilty? No. What, what the heck is Flora saying if there is no ghost? I didn't know this governess was crazy. Doesn't she know Miss Jessel is dead? What do you mean, where is Miss Jessel? What bizarre game is this? Or, how did you know? Again, we don't know how to read that expression. Imagine this done as a trial. Um, that is, that, that the, let's say the governess is being tried, and everyone agrees on the facts. Mrs. Gross comes up and um, says, yes, I saw Flora's stricken face. And when she said, where is Miss Jessel? And um, the defense attorney for the governess says, you see, all she had to do was mention Miss Jessel. And Flora was disturbed. And then the prosecution of the governess says, well, of course Flora was disturbed when, when the governess whom she trusted asks her where a dead person is. What would you expect to happen? Um, so again, something has happened, but we don't know how to read its significance. And then, but just at that moment, the governess sees Miss Jessel. Says, she's there, she's there. Now, that can prove the defense attorney. You see, all she had to do was mention Miss Jessel, and Miss Jessel rushes out of some supernatural habitation to try to prevent and protect Flora from the governess's knowledge. And the prosecution says, no, it's clear that all the governess has to do is think about Miss Jessel, and she starts hallucinating her. That's what she does, over and over. Um, just as what made her see Peter Quint, according to the prosecution, on the first time she sees him, on the turret, 
was that she was thinking, what a nice thing it would be to meet the master. And then she sees someone and she thinks, oh, it's the master. And then she somehow realizes, but it can't be. And then who does she see? Well, she sees the guy who wears the master's clothes and who goes around, who actually goes to Bly and spends time at Bly and likes being at Bly and is willing to have sex with governesses at Bly. Yeah. She didn't know he existed before she saw that. It's kind of a minor hole in that argument. No, but she saw someone who was, who, who, Want, she wanted to be the master, but wasn't. Yeah, it doesn't matter if she's a, if he's a complete fantasy. If he doesn't exist, she could have just created him. Yeah. Now, what she doesn't know is that Peter Quint and the previous governess have had sex. Is right. that your point? Well, she doesn't know that Peter Quint was a person. Yeah. That is, she doesn't she know. Just, yeah. She didn't, um, but she, and when she describes him to Miss Gross, Ms. she Gross describes terrifies. Him. Yeah. Well, that's Peter Quint. Yeah. Now, um, hang. We'll we'll have to go back to that because that's um, that description is the hardest. Um, uh, thing for someone who wants to say the governess is hallucinating to explain away. So if you're taking the governess is hallucinating line, that's the hardest thing to explain away. Those who do take that line say, look, the governess may have, may have unconsciously or without knowing it heard descriptions of Peter Quint in the bars in the town. Um, there's obviously buzz about him and rumors, and she may have not realized how much she'd heard. She may have been prompted um, to thoughts of, unconscious thoughts of Peter Quint. And then um, when she's thinking, boy, I'd really like to see the master, um, then these unconscious things crystallize for her for the same time. I think that's a terrible argument. Um, and the reason I think it's a terrible argument is you shouldn't have to, in order to understand a fiction, you shouldn't have to make up supplementary fictional stuff for yourself in order to make it make sense. You can always do that. You know, it might very well be that the governess um, met um, Lawrence Fishburne when she was um, um, taking a walk um, through an office building right outside of Bly, and he said, would you like the blue or the red pill? And she took the blue pill, and after that she was just in the Matrix, and, um, and she was being beamed thoughts. I mean, you can make up any story um, if you're allowed to add narrative events that are not in the story itself. So I agree with you, Ben, that that's the hardest thing for a governess who's hallucinating um, reading to deal with, is her very intense description of Peter Quint. Um, partly, and I'll just say this in general, because in all of Henry James, this is far and away the most explicit description of any character or of any object that you ever get is the description of Peter Quint. There is nowhere, and Henry James has written many thousands of pages, nowhere is there a description remotely as detailed. The most that you get is she was a fair-haired young woman. Um, that's the most that you get in a description of a person. Um, even in a description of a work of art, um, it was, it was um, a quattrocenta work of art suffused with that rare light of the time. That's all. We won't even know what's in the picture. Um, so James is famous for not describing. I think we have a very strong sense of, of Bly as just this beautiful and idyllic and pastoral place, but I doubt that you could, that any two people would come up with a remotely similar um, sense of the, uh, would, would map it in a remotely similar way. We just, thank goodness, you could say, 
we don't get long descriptions about, well, the drawing room led by a corridor to the sitting room um, whose window gave out upon, you know, the kind of thing that, that you always get in 19th century novels, pointless description of houses. None of that in James. You never get that in James unless it's absolutely necessary. All you need to know is there's a turret and a stairway and a window and that you can get around to the other side of the window. That's all you need to know and that's all he tells you. Besides that, well, the house is large as it should be um, and the grounds are beautiful. But that's all you know. Um, but there's this intense description of Peter Quint, so strangely excessive compared to the rest of Henry James that it either means that he's making for darn sure that you don't think that Peter Quint is her hallucination and that the, the game can still be there. That is, the kids, as we're about to see, want Mrs. Gross to think that the governess is hallucinating. There's no, there's no question that if the ghosts exist and if the children see them, then their game is to try to make everyone else think the governess is hallucinating. That's certainly the case, but that's the conditional if. Um, and you could say then that the description of Peter Quint is James saying, look, of course a lot of people think the governess is hallucinating, but this proves she isn't. Does that make sense? Um, or the other possibility is, look what I'm going to do. Um, nothing up my sleeve. Huge description of Peter Quint. Um, really going overboard describing him, see if you can figure out what the trick is that makes this not decisive. Since nothing else in this book is decisive, why would that be the one decisive thing? And why wouldn't there be a description of Miss Jessel just to nail it down? Why doesn't she say, you know, oh, guess what? Um, I've seen this woman. She's got curly hair with whatever. Yeah. I have to say, I mean, something that I, I know it's not, I know it's not decisive, I'm not saying it is, but when she finally, when, when the governess finally shows her hand and she says, there's Miss Jessel right there, yeah. right over there, and Flora doesn't even look, she just looks at the governess. Yeah. I don't know, like, what kind of five-year-old wouldn't look if you say, there's a ghost right behind you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, there's something a little, there's something a little uh, spooky about that. She doesn't even look. She just looks at the governess the entire time with a complete blank face. Yeah. Um, some, I don't know. I know it's not decisive, but it's, it's something. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, um, if she were trying to fool the governess, she would look. And remember, the governess is looking at Mrs. Gross for a minute. So what happens is she says she's there, she's there. Um, she looks at Mrs. Gross, and it's obvious that Mrs. Gross doesn't see anything. Then she turns to Flora, and Flora's just staring at her. And that can be an indication that Flora has already thought that the governess is pretty weird, as well she might, given the governess's behavior. Remember, from the kid's point of view, if the kids are innocent, the governess is just as strangely sweet, as strangely cherubic or seraphic as the kids are to her. Um, the governess makes sure never to rebuke them, never to um, do the kind of thing the governesses do, which is to yell at their charges um, and to, to keep them in line and to discipline them, especially in the 19th century. 
um, you know, what makes Mary Poppins so wonderful is that she's not like every other governess. The governess is just a figure um, of, of schoolroom discipline for children. Um, the governess will do what parents aren't willing to do. You know, I mean, you guys have seen, um, what's the nanny show? Um, super, nanny. super Nanny. Yeah. I mean, that's what governesses generally are, but this governess is no super nanny. Um, she's cherubic from the kid's point of view, and the kids are thinking she's weird. The point is that if the governess is hallucinating, then everything that the governess sees in the children is a reflection of what they see in her. That is, they're behaving, they're on their best behavior with her because she's on her best behavior with them. And she's on her best behavior with them because they're on her best behavior with her. Because each side thinks the other side is hiding something. And, but they don't, they're not quite sure what. At least the kids aren't. So now she says, where's Miss Jessel? And then Mrs. Gross screams. And the child looks, um, um, again, what, um, um, Well, the, 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 the paragraph does go on. But just look at the beginning of the second paragraph of that chapter. Miss Jessel stood before us on the opposite bank, exactly as she had stood the other time. And I remember strangely, as the first feeling now produced in me, my thrill of joy at having brought on a proof. She was there, so I was justified. She was there, so I was neither cruel nor mad. So the point is, if Miss Jessel is not there, the governess is not justified. If and she may be cruel and mad. Um, so she, and she thinks this is her proof, my thrill of joy at having brought on a proof. By saying, where's Miss Jessel, she brought on a proof. Proof for whom? Proof for Mrs. Gross. Proof for, um, more or less, proof for Flora. So notice that this sets the stakes. Here, the governess is absolutely clear about what the stakes are that if there are no ghosts, then she is cruel and mad. And if she can't prove that there are ghosts, even if they are there, if she can't prove them, then she can't prove that she's not cruel or mad. So two different things. Is she cruel or mad? Forget the cruelty, although that may be part of her madness. But is she mad? Not if anyone else sees the ghost. Um, Excuse me. No, is she mad? Not if the ghost is really there. Can she prove she's not mad? Yes, if someone else sees the ghost. Two different things. So if the ghost is there, she's not mad. If she can prove that, that the ghost is there by having someone else sees it, then she's proving she's not mad. So go to the end now, because Flora basically doesn't see the ghost or, or claims not to see the ghost. And the proof she thought she had, she doesn't have. Because Flora doesn't say, yes, there she is. Mrs. Gross doesn't see it. And Flora doesn't say, oh my god, you see Miss Jessel too. Well, in we which case, over. Flora also has a complete, like, not a complete psychotic break, but she has yeah, something, yeah, she, of a, something of a psychotic break after this. Yeah. Which is also, I don't know, something. The governess you've trusted all summer turns out to be a total whack bird. All right. <laughs> go to the end, um, which, which partly speaks to this. So go to chapter 24. Um, 
so she now finds out that Miles she um, has taken her letter, um, and then she starts asking him, um, why was he kicked out of school? Because remember what she's never said to Miles. What has she never admitted to Miles that she knows? Yeah, and this really bothers him. You know, here's this wonder. Here she's acting as though she doesn't know. She must know. Why isn't she telling me? Does she really not know? Can I find out whether she knows? Again, do this from Miles's point of view. Um, and you know, you can use that as a paper topic if you like. Um, and the governess is being strangely sweet given the terrible thing she knows, seems to know about him. So finally she asks him and, and he says, well, I said things, etc. Um, and then he says, she says, uh, I didn't know they tell about the masters. The masters? She asks, they didn't. They never told. That's why I ask you. He turned to me again, his little beautiful fevered face. Yes, it was too bad. Too bad? What I suppose I sometimes said to write home. I can't name the exquisite pathos of the contradiction given to such a speech by such a speaker. So he says, I did something terrible, terrible, and he's the sweetest kid in the world. Such a speech, what I did was too bad, by such a speaker, someone so sweet. I only know that the next instant I heard myself throw off with homely force, stuff and nonsense. But the next after that, I must have sounded stern enough. What were these things? And she realizes that he misunderstands her sternness. My sternness was all for his judge, his executioner, yet it made him avert himself again. He thinks that she's angry at him. What were these things? Whereas she's angry at the masters. Um, it made him avert himself again, and that movement made me, with a single bound and an irrepressible cry, spring straight upon him, for there again against the glass, as if to blight his confession and stay his answer, was the hideous author of our woe, the white face of damnation. So first she said, where's Miss Jessel? And Miss Jessel appears. Now she says, why were the masters so angry? And the person she first confused with the master himself, Peter Quint, shows up. I felt a sick swim at the drop of my victory. He was about to say how he felt. And all the return of my battle so that the wildness of my veritable leap only served as a great betrayal. So she leaps at him to prevent him from seeing Peter Quint because she's about to lose it all. But that betrays her. Now Miles knows some weird thing is going on. I saw him from the midst of my act meet it with a divination. He's guessing. That's what it means to divine something, um, especially in 19th century English. Um, it still means that in French. Uh, uh, the practice of guessing riddles is called deviner, divine what it is I'm saying. I saw him from the midst of my act meet it with a divination. And on the perception that even now he only guessed and that the window was still to his own eyes free. So I suddenly realized he was guessing that I saw something in the window, but he didn't see anything there. I let, so realizing that, I let the impulse flame up to convert the climax of his dismay into the very proof of his liberation. No more, no more, no more, I shrieked to my visitant as I tried to press him against me. So notice that here we get a repetition which isn't one of what happened with Miss Jessel, because she realizes that Miles does not see Peter Quint. And that should trouble her, but it also makes her feel triumphant. She's exercised him from her point of view if Miles doesn't see Peter Quint. How do we know she doesn't see him? He doesn't see her? Well, not only does he look like he's guessing that she sees something, even though he doesn't. She, yeah? Is he looking toward the window? 
Oh, yeah, yeah, no, but it's clear that the window to his own eyes is free, so he is looking at the window at that point. And then he says, is she here? Miles panted as he caught with his sealed eyes the direction of my words. Then as his strange she staggered me, and with a gasp I echoed it. So what's strange about she? Means he saw Miss Jessel. Yeah, so he's asking, is Miss Jessel here? I echoed it. I say, she? Miss Jessel, Miss Jessel, he with sudden fury gave me back. I seized, stupefied his supposition. That is, I realized that he was supposing I saw Miss Jessel. Some sequel to what we had done to Flora. Quite an amazing phrase, what we had done to Flora. But this made me only want to show him that it was better still than that. It's not Miss Jessel, but it's at the window straight before us. It's there, the coward hard, there for the last time. So. Um, we'll stop now, bring this back on Monday, and we'll finish the last page. Also read, start the Book of Ephraim, and read letters A through D. The Book of Ephraim is the first part of the book called The Changing Light at Sandover. It's in letters, 26 letters, like which we already established is the number of letters in our, in our alphabet earlier today. See how clever that was? Um, read letters A through D. Um, of the Book of Ephraim, the first part of the Changing Light at Sandover. And bring that in on Monday as well. Okay, have a good weekend.